Christ is our cornerstone. Amen? So grateful and thankful for that. It's probably my favorite part of the service right here. Not that they're leaving, but to see them all come. That's my favorite part. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We will continue our series that we have titled uh, Kings from the Letter. Or Kings from the Letter. Letters from the King. Sorry. We've been journeying through the seven churches of Revelation where Christ himself writes a letter to each of these seven churches. This morning we'll be in the church, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. So, uh, let's read God's word. Uh, listen as we read God's word. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogues of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own name, my own new name. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now over the last few weeks, we're in this, coming to the close of this series, and so we have this church and next week's church, and then we'll end. And as, if you've been with us any length of time, you know that the way the writer, John, has written these letters, is the picture is as if he's writing as a picture frame. And so the first and the last church uh, are the frame of the picture. They, they are the churches that have lost their love. We'll look at that next week with Laodicea, that he says, you've lost your love for me. And so he starts that, the letters that way and will end the letters that way. And then the next two chap, the chapter, uh, the the church right after the first and second are the same. It's the mat of the picture, and that's what we'll look at this morning, is Philadelphia. They are the two churches that there is no condemnation for. There's no rebuke for. It's only encouragement. And we'll look at how Christ writes this church, Philadelphia, a letter of encouragement this morning. And then the last, the, the middle three, the picture where all of God is putting his attention through Christ and writing the letter is those three middle churches, and they go from bad to worse, as we looked at last week, he said to the church of Sardis, you do all these things, but you're dead. And so Christ, through writing these letters, is saying to us, I don't want you to be a dead church. And then he's going to come out of to that from last week into this week, and he's going to encourage the church. And the, the format of the, the way that the writers write, we're going to look at the city, we'll look at the church. Then we'll look at the address from the king, and we'll look at the affirmation of the king, the authority, the address, and the affirmation of the king this morning. 
As I was studying this week for this particular church, uh, God laid on my heart that I believe this would be the letter that God would write to Powell's Chapel. Out of all the seven letters, I really believe that if God himself were to pen Powell's Chapel a letter, this is the letter that it would be. And you'll see the reason behind that as we get into the message. And I think that it's true for us this morning. That what God is going to reveal to us this morning is true for us here at Powell's Chapel. And I, I cannot wait to see what God is going to do. The same way that God used this small church in that community to expand his kingdom to the known world at the time. It was a small church. But yet the power of God was in the church. I believe the power of God is here at Powell's Chapel. We just celebrated 140 years last week. Uh, that, that is an amazing accomplishment for a church. So many churches in America today are closing their doors. And at the same time, old churches are closing their doors. There's new churches coming up. But what, for whatever reason, God has allowed Pass Chapel to be around for 140 years. That is a miracle. We need to celebrate that. And I believe the celebration we'll see comes out of this letter to the church of Philadelphia. Let's pray and give this time to the Lord this morning. God, I'm so grateful for what we just sang. You are our cornerstone. and We lay our anchor in you. You are unmovable. You're unshakable. God, no matter how bad the storm is, when we anchor our lives in you, we will not be moved. So grateful for that grateful for this service this morning. I pray that through your Holy Spirit that none of us would leave this place the way we came in, but we would continue to be transformed uh, into the likeness of your son Jesus. Grateful that we have this letter to the church of Philadelphia, this letter of encouragement. I pray in the same way, God, that you encourage the church of Philadelphia, that this morning you would encourage our hearts. Encourage us to continue to be bold in this community that is surrounded with lost people the same way that this small church in Philadelphia was. So continue to lead us and guide us this morning. Allow your word to do what only your word can do, and that's to divide the bones and the marrows and the flesh, divide our hearts, God. Begin to purge the things out of our lives that keep us uh, hindered from loving you completely and loving our neighbor completely. Have your way in this service. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. As I said, we're reading from Revelation chapter 3. This is the, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was about 30 miles away from the city of Sardis. Sardis we looked at last week. It's kind of to the, the southeast of Sardis, about 30 miles away. It was the youngest of the seven cities. It's the, it was established in about 18, uh, 189 A.D., about 189 years after Christ uh, was around. It, that's when it was established. So it's the youngest church. Um, it didn't have much influence. It was started to be, it started for the idea that it would become this cultural icon in all of Asia, Asia Minor, which is known as Turkey. And so because it, it decided that the, the reason it was built was to have this cultural influence all over Asia. It was known for its trade routes. So there was trade routes that would go all throughout the city and would disperse throughout the known world. 
It was known as the gateway to the east. There were so many trade routes to the east. They would take all their goods and they would export them and import them from the east. And so it had a nickname of the city of Philadelphia as the gateway to the east. The, the city's name comes out of where, how it was founded. It was founded from a brother and the king. The king uh, at that time had a brother and the brother left the kingdom in Rome and went down uh, into Philadelphia, the region of Philadelphia, and planted this city. And that's where the name comes from. The name comes from Philadelphus, which means brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's where we get the name Philadelphia for. Because this man that started the city had such an affection for his older brother that he was known as Philadelphus because of his brotherly love, and therefore the city was named after him. Also in about 17 AD, the city experienced a major earthquake. And because of that earthquake, it dispersed all the people all over uh, that region because of the earthquake. It basically destroyed the city. And because of the earthquake, it never really took off the way they were hoping to. The city never grew and became a massive city, a known city. And yet, somehow, God had planted a church. And the church of Philadelphia, we know very, very little about. The Church of Philadelphia, most likely, as were the other ones except for Ephesus, was planted by Ephesus and Paul. That The church in Ephesus planted this church uh, away from Sardis and then away from uh, Ephesus to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the only thing that we really know about the Church of Philadelphia was that the people of Philadelphia, the Christians, were also killed along with the church that we read about a f several weeks ago, the Church of Smyrna, the only other church that Christ talks about a way of encouragement. They're the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Philadelphia, most of its members were killed for the cause of Christ. That's all that we really know uh, about this small church. Uh, we know that it's small. We'll get to that in the text. Uh, it wasn't a very big church. It didn't have a lot of influence in the city. It didn't even have a lot of influence in the world, and yet God was saying to them, even though you were small, your influence for the kingdom is big. So they, they were small and had no influence really in the city. Uh, what the people could see, God's kingdom was being expanded because of this small church. We'll see that uh, here in a few minutes. And yet, God, through Jesus, told John to write this church in Philadelphia. And the question we've asked along the way for all of us here at Powell's Chapel. If God were to pen us a letter, what would that letter say? That's what we've been asking each of these letters. If God were to write Powell's Chapel a letter, what would it say? I believe wholeheartedly that it would look something like this church. Uh, that's one of the things that stood out to me and Jenny when we first came here was the, the kindness of the church. The Church of Philadelphia was known for its kindness. Philadelphia, brotherly love. It was known for its brotherly love. I really believe uh, that, that this place, most people when they come to Palace Chapel have said, man, the thing that stands out is the kindness of the people, the kindness of the people, the love of the people. And so I believe that if Jesus were to write us a letter, it would look something like this. And so let's get into the letter and see what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia. In verse 7, he says this. He says, and to the angel, remember the angel is the messenger or the pastor of the church. To the angel, to the pastor of the church of Philadelphia, write this. The words of the Holy One, the true one, 
who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So Jesus is going to come out in this letter and begin to establish who he is as the king of the church, the, the ruler of the church. And he says this about him. He says there's three things about him that sets him in authority over the church. It's the first time in the letters that he doesn't refer back to himself from chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It's the first time that he goes after three things. And he, this is what he says about himself. The first thing that he says about himself is, as I'm the author and have the authority to write this, I am this, is what he says. I am the Holy One. Jesus, again, is establishing himself as God. Not only was he human, but he was fully God. And so by saying he was the Holy One, he was saying to the church, I am also God. I am without sin. He can, is the only human that can ever say that, that Jesus Christ walked this planet and was a blameless man. Jesus never sinned. That's what separates our God from every other religion, that we had a God that would put on skin and come and deal and dwell with us and would be sinless. And so Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia, I am fully God and I am fully man and I am sinless. I'm without blemish. He's holy. And then he says this. He says, I'm the true one. What he means by that, what he's saying is those words, the true one means I am real. I'm authentic. You, you know, you can have something that is without blemish and it not be real. Right? You, you can have a false uh, thing. The best way I know how to say it is tennis shoes. You know, back in the day when I was Growing up, everyone wanted the new Michael Air Jordans, and so other companies decided to make shoes that looked like Michael Air Jordans. They looked without blemish, but when you began to look at the shoe, it, it really was not a true Nike shoe. And so what Jesus is saying, I'm without blemish, but I'm also true. I'm the real deal. I'm real. And so with that, it's a combination of he's without blemish, and he's true, he's authentic, and therefore he's saying to the church, you can follow me wholly and completely. Because I'm the real deal. I'm holy and I'm true. I'm holy and I'm true. He then goes on and says this in verse 7. He says that he is the one that holds the key of David. And you know, studying this passage, I was like, man, that, that is an interesting thing to say. Of all the things that he could say to himself after saying I'm true and I'm holy, that then he would say I hold the key of David. And what Jesus is saying there, he's saying David is just a symbolic representation of he is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. If you remember through the Old Testament, the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. And so he's saying to the church of Philadelphia, I am from David. I am the Messiah. Not only am I blameless, not only am I true, but I am the chosen Messiah. You remember in the Jewish culture, the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that Jesus was going to be the one that was going to fulfill the Old Testament. And so he's writing to this church that's in the middle of a Jewish culture and saying to them, hey, I am the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. I am the one that's going to redeem all things. That's what he's saying by the word David. And then he uses the word key. The word key means that he was in control of all things. The word key throughout the, the word of God is used as a symbol of being totally in control. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and therefore he is totally in control of all things. And then you put that sentence together, that he is the one who holds 
the key of David is referring back to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where Isaiah is talking about this man, uh, Leachim, who was in charge of the kingdom of David, and because he was in the kingdom of David, he was the one that held the key to the kingdom of David. He was the one that stood at the gate of the kingdom of David, and he was the one that would allow people to come in or go out. He was the gatekeeper. And so Jesus is saying in this text that I'm the holy one. I'm the chosen one. I'm the one that has it all. I'm the Messiah, and therefore I'm in control, and I'm also in control of who comes in and out of the kingdom of God. He is totally in control. That Jesus Christ holds the key to our salvation. And he says in that passage, in verse 7, that no one, that he's the one who opens it, and no one can shut it. And who shuts it, no one can open open it. He's saying, I'm in control of it all. I am the gatekeeper to our, to your salvation. There is no other way to God into being a king, into the kingdom of God except through Jesus Christ. He is the gatekeeper of it. There's no other way for us to have relationship with a holy God except through Jesus. And Jesus is the one that decides who is able to come into the kingdom and who is not able to come leave the kingdom or come into the kingdom. He is in control over all things. And so Jesus is establishing himself as the ruler and perfecter of their salvation. He's doing that for us this morning in this text. He's saying, I'm holy, I'm without sin, I'm true, I'm authentic, and I hold the key to everyone's salvation. And then he writes to the church. He addresses the church out of that. He established himself as the king of the world, basically, and says to Philadelphia, because I am the Messiah, because I am the Holy One, the Chosen One, the, the True One, and I am the one that is the gatekeeper, I say this to you. Remember, he said this to the other churches. In verse 8, he says this, I know your works. Circle the word know. It's in each of the previous letters. That's just a simple statement that says, I know you intimately. Christ himself knows us intimately. He is in intimate relationship with every believer. If we trust in him, we place our hope and our faith and our lives in him, he therefore knows us intimately. And he says to them, I know your works, I know you intimately. And he says this, we'll get back to this phrase. Uh, after he says to them, he's going to address them in three ways in this first text. He's going to give them some encouragement. There's three things that he in encourages that as they're growing in their faith with him. And so he says, I've set before you an open door. We'll come back to that. Uh, just start that. I promise we'll get back to that. He says, which the door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you are of but little power. That's one. You've kept my words too and have not denied my name. And so Jesus comes to them in all authority and addresses the church and says this about the church. And this is where I believe that we are so much like the church of Philadelphia. The first thing that he says to the church in knowing their works, he gives them some encouragement. He says, I know that you're small. That's what that phrase means, that you are of little power, that you have very little influence, that there's not a lot about you that's going to stand out to the city. And he says this as a way of encouragement to them. And so I believe that Jesus, if you wrote Palace Chapel, would say, I know you're small, and it's okay. That's what he's saying to Philadelphia. I know that you have very little power. He says, that's the first thing that he says to them, and then he comes out of that and says this, 
even though you have little power, this is what you've done uh, with your uh, relationship with me. He says, you've done two things. You've kept my word. The first thing that we see the church of Philadelphia, that God is saying to them as a way of encouragement, you've kept my word. He's saying, you've been an obedient church. That's what that phrase means, kept his word. Is it true for us at Powell's Chapel? I believe it is that we've been an obedient church. In the existence of 140 years of this church, that just church, it would be labeled that we've been an obedient church. We have kept the word of God uh, in our hearts, as David says. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, God. I've kept your word. We've been an obedient people the same way that Philadelphia was an obedient church. The second thing that we see, he says this, that you have not denied my name. He's saying not only have you been obedient, but you've also been faithful. You see, the church of Philadelphia, just like the church of Smyrna, was facing much, much persecution. They lived in the culture, a Jewish culture. In that Jewish culture, the Jews did not want to believe that Jesus was Messiah. And any time a Christian would come out and say that, that Jesus was the Messiah, persecution came to the church. And he's saying, even though you're small, you've been obedient, even in your obedience, you've been faithful as the persecutions come. You've not denied my name. You see, Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, brings about persecution. We've heard story after story. When we begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that persecution will come to us. And so he's saying to this church, this is what I see about you. You're a small church. But even though you're small, even though you're small and have very little influence that the world can see, you've been obedient and you've been faithful. I believe that's true about Powell's Chapel. I believe Powell's Chapel has been an obedient church and a faithful church. And then he says this to them. He says, because of you, he now says, because of your obedience, because of your faithfulness, and even though you're small, I'm going to make you some promises. I believe that the promises are true for us here at Powell's Chapel this morning. The first promise you'll see, we'll go back to the beginning of verse 8. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to open. That phrase, I've placed an open door, that open door just means a place of service. That through their faithfulness and through their obedience, God has opened the gates of heaven for them to go and proclaim the gospel in their city. And he's saying to them, because of your obedience and because of your faithfulness, you will serve the community, and in serving the community, you will see results. Because of their faithfulness and because of their obedience. And he's saying to them, the door is wide open for that. And he's saying, no, no matter what anyone does to you, no one can shut the door. Because what I've established, and I've established in you as a church, I've opened the door for you to take the gospel out. I believe that to be so true for us here at Powell's Chapel. That just within a stone's throw from any direction, there are lost people. And I believe because of our faithfulness, and because of our obedience, God is saying to this church here at Powell's Chapel, hey, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I'm opening the door for you, Powell's Chapel, to go and reach the lost people of this city. That's the whole reason that we as a church exist. That's the whole reason that the church of Philadelphia exists was to reach lost people. And he's saying, I'm the one that opens the door to that and no one can shut it. Just remain faithful and remain obedient. He goes on to say this, that that's the first promise, that God has opened the door for the church. The, third, the second promise is this. He says in verse 9, 
He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will do this. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus is saying in that text that even though those that persecute you, that's what the Jews were doing. They were persecuting the church of Philadelphia. God has made a promise to the church that's being persecuted that the persecutor will come and bow down to them. That things will turn in God's time and that things will turn and the ones that are persecuting will no longer persecute and you will have dominion and reign over the persecutor. So Jesus has made a promise. The persecution will end. And the, the one that has power over you will no longer have power over you. That's such an encouraging word for me this morning. I pray that's an encouraging word for us as a church this morning. He's going to go on in to talk about the persecution because we will, we've talked about it in this series, there is persecution that will happen to the church, but there will be a time where there will be no more persecution. That is a promise from the Lord Jesus. And so when you and I get discouraged and it seems like we're being persecuted in every direction, God is saying to us here in this word, if we remain faithful and obedient, the persecution will end. And those that persecute us, we will then have rule over. That's the second promise that Jesus made this small church in Philadelphia. The last promise, he says this. It's kind of in the same vein as the second promise. Verse 10. He's saying, because you've kept my word uh, about the patient endurance, we just talked about that. That's their faithfulness, even though they've been persecuted. He's saying, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that is coming to the whole world to try you and dwell you on all the earth. And so what Jesus is saying, the third promise is that God is going to protect them from the tribulation. He's going to protect the church from tribulation. Tribulation will come. Whatever stance you take on tribulation, the, the word of God is true. Tribulation is coming. And so God is saying to the church that he's going to protect them from the tribulation. And so either way, any stance you take on the, the, the idea of tribulation, either it's before the rapture, after the rapture, or during the rapture, God is saying to the church, he's made a promise to them, he's made a promise to us here this morning that we will be protected in the tribulation. Now that doesn't mean that we will not face persecution in the tribulation, that just means that we will not die in the tribulation. That God will redeem the church and God will set the church free and God will uphold the church. And we will not die with those who are apart from, from Christ, that we will be protected. And then there will be an ongoing protection for us after the tribulation. It's called glorification. He's saying to the church, you will enter into glory. You will be protected by that. There's nothing that can rob you or steal you of your salvation. You are protected. But there is an hour that's coming for the church that we will face persecution. And Christ is saying to this church, because you've remained faithful and you've remained obedient, I will protect you. That's such a promise for us. That is such a promise. The Church of America is being persecuted in such a way that we probably haven't seen persecution in a long time, and yet we can rest assured this morning that God will protect us through it all. And I know it may not feel that way, but we've got to stand on the Word of God and hold true to the Word of God that God's word is true, and therefore he will protect us. So the three promises of a church that remains faithful and obedient to him are, are this, that 
he will continue to open a door for us to share the gospel with lost people, that he'll protect us, and that we will have power over those who abuse us. And then Jesus goes on and says this, after the promises, he says this, this is what it's going to look like. This is how I'm going to protect you. So he doesn't just say, I'm going to, he doesn't just say you're protected. Now he's going to go into the rest of the next two verses and talk about the way that the church will be protected. Verse 11. The first one is this. We hold to this promise in our protection. Verse 11. Jesus says to them, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. The return of the Lord, it's going to happen quickly. We can hold true that God is going to return. That is a promise from the Lord. That God will return. He will redeem all people to himself. He is going to collect the church back to himself. And it's going to happen soon. God says, I'm coming and I'm coming soon. God has promised us his return. I'm so grateful that we have a God who will return. We don't just have a God that came and was Jesus and died on the cross and rose from the grave and then has left us and have abandoned us. We've not been abandoned by God. God says he will come through Jesus Christ and he will rescue us and he's coming soon. That is a great promise from the Lord this morning. The other way that he says, I'm going to protect you, not only will he protect us by coming soon, he says this. He said, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He said, do this. Okay, so in my protection, I'm coming soon. This is what you are to do when you're waiting for me to return. He says, hold fast to what you have. What do we have as a church? We have our salvation. That may be all that we have, but that's more than enough. The cross of Jesus is more than enough. And he's saying to the church, just hold fast to your salvation. Let us never forget our salvation. Let us never forget that God redeemed us and set us free and we're whole people because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's saying to the church, hold fast to that. Hold fast to your salvation. He's saying this. He says, let no one seize the crown that you have. The, the Greek words are there that if you were to translate into Greek, it's as this way, the crown that which has life. And what the crown is, is our salvation. Our salvation gives us life here and gives us life in eternity. Man, that, that is a great promise. That there's way more to life than just this. And Christ is saying, as you wait for me, be patient and hold fast to your salvation. Because in holding fast to your salvation, you're holding fast to your eternal life. I've said it before from this pulpit, I'll say it again. If you're a believer this morning... This is the only hell that you'll ever know. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you don't know Christ, this is the only heaven you'll ever know. If you're an unbeliever this morning, this is the best you'll ever experience. That ought to be frightening to us if we don't know Christ. But if you're a believer this morning, it can't get any worse than this. It only gets better from here. Amen? Amen? We will get to spend eternity with a holy God if we are a believer. And so what he's saying is it's not just about this life, but there's a life to come. He's talking about the process of our glorification. Right now, as a believer, we're in the midst of what the Bible calls our sanctification, the ongoing process of our salvation, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life to continue to transform us. And he's talking about in this verse, it's not just about your sanctification that will happen, 
but there's something that's going to happen. It's called our glorification that will happen, that we will have new bodies, that we will experience the, the absence of sin, that we will experience not just the presence, the power of sin, we'll experience the, the, the absolute nothingness of sin, that sin will no longer have reign over us, that the power of sin will not be able to affect us, that we will be in our glorified bodies with a holy God. That's glorification. That's the end of our lives, that we stand before a holy God. And the way he talks about in the New Testament, be holy for I am holy, there will be a day that you and I stand before, before a holy God without sin. And it's not because of anything we've done, but it's because of holding fast to our salvation. There will be a day that sin does not reign in our lives any longer. Amen? Amen. And so we hold fast to that. That's the promise that God gives us this morning. Now of a way of encouragement to the church. He says this in verse 12 and 13. This is the affirmation. There's four blessings that God speaks over the people of the church of Philadelphia. I believe it's the same four blessings that he shares with us this morning. The first one is found here in verse 12. He says this, as we remain faithful and we remain obedient as a church, as we hold fast to our salvation, he says this will happen. The one who conquers, the one who makes it to glorification, this is what will happen. He says, I will make him a pillar. The, the word pillar there just simply means that we will be unmovable, even on this part of in etern before eternity, that if we hold fast and we continue to work out our salvation with much fear and trembling, that we will become pillars in this community. That no matter what happens to us and what happens around us, that the people cannot move us because we become pillars. And he says, you're not just going to be a pillar here in this earth, but you will be a, a pillar in the kingdom of God, is what he says later on. He says that you will become a pillar of God in the kingdom of God. That you will not be moved, you will not be shaken, that it doesn't matter what will happen to you when we lay hold to being faithful and obedient. That just like Jared's saying, when we lay our anchor in the cross of Jesus Christ, we will not be shaken, we will not be moved. Amen? And then he goes on, the, the second promise is this, and this is, the, the next three are just so beautiful for me. He said, you'll be a pillar in the temple of God. Also, for the word pillar, there's a, a place of honor. In the, the temples in the, the ancient world, a temple was a place of honor. And so God's saying, you won't be moved and you'll have a place of honor. Though it may not feel like that this morning, there will be a place of honor for us as we remain faithful and obedient to God. The, the second one is this. He says this, never shall you go out of it, the temple of God. And then he says this, I will write on him the name of my God. He's saying the second promise is, the second blessing is that when we remain faithful, when we remain obedient to God, God seals us with his approval. And Paul says it this way, that we've been adopted into his family. And so when we remain faithful, when we remain true, that our name changes. And he's saying the name that changes is that we will be, the name of God will be written on us. That we belong to him, amen? That we are his sons and his daughters. And if we believe that this morning, if we really believe that we're the sons and the daughters of God, and God is the king of kings and the Lord of God, lords, then we are now prince and princes of a kingdom. We are the prince, just like Jesus himself was a prince. We are now the princess and the princesses of God because God has written his 
name on us. The same way for me when I was in second grade, my, my dad adopted us. And so my name totally changed. All of it changed. Before the adoption, my name was TJ. Don't ever call me that. I, I might go into a panic attack. My name was Todd Jr. And so, but in that moment when I went before the courts and my dad adopted us and my last name changed, I was no longer who I was going into the courtroom. I left a totally different person. And that is true for us today. When we've placed our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ, we're no longer the same. We're totally different. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the judge, the king of the world, has stamped his approval and said, no more, it's changed, you are different. If we place our hope and our faith this morning in Christ, we are different people. We are sealed with an eternity that can never be taken from us. You cannot lose the name of God on you. No one, Jesus said at the very beginning of this passage, no one can take that from you. The also, the part that we don't talk about a lot is you can't take that from yourself. You, you cannot take your salvation from you because you're not the one that got it. God put it on you, and so therefore, he says, no one can take it off of you. You can't take it off yourself, and I will not take it off of you. And so this morning, if you're a believer, you've been stamped with approval of God, and you are a changed individual, amen? The last, the, the third thing he says this. He says this, not only now are you my sons and you're my daughters, he says this to us, the church. He says to them, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which came down from my God out of heaven. He's saying this, now you are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Not only are you my children, but now because you're my children, you belong to a new city. Paul says it this way, this is not my home. I'm an alien here. And so now that we're sons and daughters of God, we have a new citizenship. It's called the kingdom of God. We are now citizens of the kingdom of God. We'll look at a, a few weeks that because we've been invited in, we've been welcomed into the kingdom of God, there is a way to live our life. We must live our lives differently in the kingdom of God, and we'll look at that in a few weeks. And so Jesus says to the church, you're a pillar, you're my sons and my daughters, you, you belong in my kingdom, you are in my kingdom, you're not a peasant in my kingdom, you are at the, the throne room with me, you sit at the throne of God with him. And the fourth thing he says to them, he says this, in my own new name, and what Jesus is saying there, now that you're in the kingdom of God, as a child of God, and as a pillar in the kingdom of God, you and I will get to see the fullness of Christ himself. Amen. We will get to see Christ's risen, resurrected body who is over all things, and you and I will get to stand in heaven and get to see that. That is an amazing, an amazing gift from God, that we would get to see a risen, holy God. We don't just have to talk about it today, but one day you and I will be in the very presence of the righteous, holy God, the Son of God, and we will see him for all that he's worth. Amen? And so that's the church of Philadelphia. I believe that to be true here at Powell's Chapel. And he says this to finish the text. I pray this is true for us this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I believe the Spirit of God is speaking to Powell's Chapel. I believe that Powell's Chapel is an obedient, faithful church. And I believe that God has so much more for us in our obedience. I believe this text to be true, that the doors to this world, to this community are wide open for us, and no one can take that from us. 
My prayer is that over the next few months, we'll see many people come into this place and we'll see many people come and surrender their life to Christ. That many people will be saved, not because of anything we've done, only that we've remained faithful and we've remained obedient. The work is up to Him. But God has called us to remain faithful and to remain obedient. Is that true for you? Is that true for me? Is that true for us here at Powell's Chapel? I believe it is. And so now, will we take the challenge and leave this place and begin to be the witness that God's called us to be? The way that He redeemed us and set us free, do we offer that hope to other people that are far from Christ? Because my hope is that many people would say, man, because of the faithfulness of Powell's Chapel, because of the obedience of Powell's Chapel, I've become a pillar in the kingdom of God. I've, the name of Christ has been written on my heart. I'm no longer a citizen of the earth. I'm a citizen of heaven. And I have, will get to see God in all of his glory one day because of our faithfulness and our obedience. Is that true for you? Is that true for me? If you don't know Christ this morning, that wouldn't be true for you. That's not true for you this morning. My prayer is that even now the Holy Spirit would be impacting your heart and that you would have many more questions. What does it mean for me to surrender my will and my life over to the to Christ Jesus? What does it mean for Christ to be the Lord and Savior of my life? I pray that if you come here with someone this morning, you just ask them at the end of the service, I'll stand here up front and I would love to walk you through what it means to surrender your will and your life over to Christ Jesus. We have no hope without Him. With Him, we have all the hope. Remember, if you're a believer this morning, this is the only hell you'll ever know. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, this is the only heaven you'll ever know. Let us God, I'm so grateful for you and to you for this passage of Scripture. My prayer is for us this morning, Lord Jesus, just like this small church in Philadelphia, that you so encouraged. I pray that we would leave here this morning encouraged because of you. God, in just a few months I've been here at Palace Chapel, I would really say that, God, this is a church that has been faithful to you and obedient to you. Pray that that would never leave us as a church. Pray that we believe you wholeheartedly when you say the door is wide open and no one can shut it. That God, the the door is wide open for this church to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this lost world. We are a small church. But that didn't matter to you. You used this small church Pray that you'll use this small church at Palace Chapel to impact this kingdom. God, my prayer is that if something ever happened to Palace Chapel Baptist Church, that the city of Walter Hill, the city of Murfreesboro, would experience a huge loss. That we'd make such an impact in this city. That if something were ever to come through and happen to this small church, that this city would mourn because of, because of this church being absent from it. It's not the church that would be absent, God. Would it be your presence through this church, through this lost community? I pray that you'd lead us. I pray you'd guide us. I pray that you even this, this day and the days to come continue to open doors to share your gospel with this lost community. We pray this in Christ's mighty and holy name. Amen.